This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, I'm going to whisper some things to you now about crunch chocolate bars. Because apparently this whispering thing is a thing that makes you feel things. It's saying something crunchy is coming in the candy wrapper language. Mm. Imagine your tongue hiking up those crispy, rocky ridges. Now, drum roll, please. Wow, that's good. Crunchy munchy chocolate doesn't whisper. Turn up the fun with crunch. Welcome to the Toddcast. Hello and welcome to episode 323 of the Filmmakers Podcast. This is a podcast where we talk filmmaking. From indie film to studio film to documentary to television to commercials and... Everything in between. How to get them made, how to make them and how to try not to... Royally F them up. In our very humble opinion. Hi, I'm Giles Alderson. And I'm Dom Lenoir, speaking like <laughs> Charles Alderson. <laughs> no, you need to move your hands drastically oh, if yeah, you're going to yeah, speak like yeah. <laughs> Today on the show, we have the always Oscar-nominated filmmaker <laughs> for his last three films, and he's only made three films as a director. So, Dom, who have we got on the podcast today? Well, he's an expert in his field. He was on his Todd, so it was a solo interview. And he fielded all of our questions. Wow. It is the director uh, of In the Bedroom. It is the director of Little Children. It is the director of Tar. It is Todd Field. Like we said, all three films of his have been Oscar-nominated. So, if you don't know what Tar is about, perhaps we should give them a little bit. Just a little bit. It is the story of a prestigious composer who is coming up with their most famous release and recording of their album, um, that's supposed to be their career highlight. And then it goes into a very interesting exploration of psyche. Um, And I won't spoil any more, because to tell you what happens would spoil the film. It really would. Um, This film stars Julian Glover. It stars Naomi Malal. It stars Mark Strong and Kate Blanchett. It was written by Todd Field. It's produced by him and Scott Lambert and Alexandra Milchen. Um, Florian Hofmeister was the cinematographer. It is just mesmerising for filmmakers to watch this movie. It's just so clever and interesting, in my opinion. I, I know a lot of people are divided on this, but when you dive deep into what this film is actually about and the hidden messages, it just opens up other worlds and portals technically there's a little clue uh, Don, what do we talk about with todd what information did he throw at us and which is going to be for our amazing listeners he talked about collaborating with titans of the acting world like kate blanchett oh he talked about working on a stanley kubrick set he talked about mentorship from stanley kubrick and Tom Cruise. Oh, yes. Ludicrous advice. Mm. Uh, he also mm. talked about his his first forays uh, into acting and how he got into directing from there. 
uh, and his um, his early humble beginnings in film. And we also talk about not only what he learnt from Stanley, but what he learnt from Jan de Bont as well when he worked with him on Twister. He also talks about rehearsal time, what he likes to do with the actors, and how he wrote Tar and getting Kate Blanchett on board. And of course, we have so much advice for filmmakers out there. Um, this was a delight. You're going to love this episode. You really. No, you might not, but I did. <laughs> I mean, you should, really. It's a great episode. You should. You should. I, think we've been, I think we've been doing pretty good on the, the episodes of late. I mean, we've, we've, we're, mm, we're pretty much like covering all of, all of the main Oscar contenders, bar like one or two that have uh, slipped away due to schedules. But, I mean, we've, we've pretty much been covering all the biggest sort of blockbusters and prestige films. It's been a very good season, actually, yeah. on the on the podcast. I like that we say seasons and we don't stop. We do every Tuesday, but let's go with seasons. Well, it, yeah, that I mean, sounds that's, cool. That's, that, there is there's the Oscar season. You know, it starts starts in October and it oh, yeah. finishes in February or March when when the Oscars uh, and the Baftas are out of the way. Uh, and it's the most exciting time of year for us, uh, us filmmakers. It is the most exciting time of year because yeah, the PR companies get in touch, and we go sure, why not? Why wouldn't we have? You know, Samuel D. Hunter, the writer of The Whale, Oscar-nominated. Why wouldn't we have BAFTA-nominated Charlotte Wells, director and writer of After Sun? Why wouldn't we have Top Gun Maverick's blockbuster director, Joseph Kaczynski? Why wouldn't we have Sebastian Lelio, director of The Wonder, and many other prestige films? Why wouldn't we have Christy wilson Cairns and Tobias Lindholm of The Amazing Good Nurse on Netflix? And why wouldn't we have Ed Berger, Albrecht Schuch, and Daniel Bruhl for All Quiet on the Western Front. Well, that film is potentially leading the Oscar nominations, leading the way. Mm. Look, basically, if you want to listen to these episodes, just go to our website, thefilmmakerspodcast.com. A lot of them are on our homepage. But if not, just go to podcasts and click in the search bar, any of those names, and you'll be able to listen to them about how they've actually made their success, how they've done it, how they've become filmmakers, how they got the money and got stuff done. And that's what we want for you guys and girls. We hope you're out there now doing exactly that. And we hope this inspires you. We really do. And if you do like this podcast, uh, go to iTunes and give us a five-star review. And we'll shout you out on the podcast for doing so. We will. That's our promise to you. On that note, do go support us even more by uh, joining our Patreon. Uh, We do have bonus episodes on there for you. We do have bonus content. I'm trying to update as much as I can, but we're very busy at the moment. But Mm. we're doing it. As we go, link to that is in the show notes. Oh, and Three Day Millionaires out in America. How exciting. It is in a couple of weeks' time, uh, 21st of February. So that, in the moment, it's just over a week's time now. So if you're in anywhere near... You've got a whole week to mourn Valentine's Day, and then you've, then you've <laughs> yes. got something fun to cheer you up. <laughs> absolutely have. Um, Three Day Millionaires are absolute delightful, fun heist comedy directed by Jack Spring produced by me and Lucinda Rose Takra and uh, I think I think you're going to love it uh, any of our American listeners Canadian listeners please do support the film let us know what you think get in touch uh, so yeah that's enough plugging out of the way apart from your much ado uh, film yes. which yes uh, I, have, is... I have a much, much, uh, <laughs> you have much, much ado about, about, about it <laughs> you yeah, do <laughs> uh, and that film has a screening at the Prince Charles Cinema on the 25th of February which Dom was involved in so uh, it's a, it is also doing a cinema tour around the country which Dom is organising yes um, coming to a cinema near you there we go so let's get to it shall we yeah let's do it yeah. why not 
going on? All right, so here it is. This is myself and Dom Noir chatting with the quite remarkable and quite frankly brilliant Todd Field. Enjoy. Enjoy. Hey Todd, hey Todd, how you doing? Unfortunately, I've been traveling with a with with a broken um, laptop for the last six months. So oh. <laughs> the only way I can do this is to, is to hook up my my iPhone with USB C cable, and I'm all morning have been scrambling for it and waiting for the for the local you know Apple store to open so I can go oh, do yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> so I apologize. I'm, I'm not trying to be a blank screen for you guys. And no, 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 no worries. It's weird. Like the technology is so uh, ubiquitous, but it's also so incredibly impressive but you Italy. take it for granted mm. and then when it doesn't work you just feel really stupid mm. you know like how amazing would this have been 10 years ago if we all said oh my god we can do this and we can yeah. speak to each other this way yeah no it's it's, it's crazy it's crazy yeah. I, I remember yeah. like in 1995 uh i'd worked on this big special effects movie and um ilm was involved in it and mm-hmm. it was a gigantic um undertaking which is they had to string cable or fiber all the way from northern california to this office in santa monica where the director at the time was working and he invited me to some of those work sessions you know where there'd be all the the gang from ilm you know essentially on a zoom call and then previewing you know visual effects for us um on the other end and it just seemed impossible and magical Mm. you know and dick Mm. tracy like that you could do that yeah, that must have been Twister. Is that right? That yeah, was Twister. Yeah, that was, there you that was go. Jan. He was he was very courtly. Jan de Yes, yes. Was, what a guy. That must have been fun to shoot on for you. Uh, like around that time, were you even thinking about? Because you'd, you'd made a short as a director by then. Well, I made right? I, I made a bunch of shorts. I had just got you'd out. Made of, a bunch of shorts. I just came out of. Uh, I just graduated from the American Film Institute that year, um, and I had quit acting. I hadn't been. I hadn't, I didn't even have an agent. Um, right. And so I got called in to do that. And, you know, I still had a lot of student loans to pay off. So I took the job and, um, you know, and I thought of, I knew Bill uh, Paxton. Well, we had made a couple of films together already. So we were friends. So I, I, I could be a lot, you know, worse time hanging out with, with that Motley crew and, um, and, and watching yeah. how Jan worked. It, it was oh. a, it was a, it was an intense shoot, you know, because most of it's daylight exterior. So mm. uh, it was a very very tough shoot, um, tough for Jan, tough for for all of us, um, you know. And we didn't really have, it, we were driving those cars, so it, you know, mm. I was I was driving a van, you know, with an emergency brake that had been removed so that we could, you know, do dirt spins around <laughs> the corners, and you know, with this a, a very small amount of that sounds, training. That sounds challenging stun- for parking. Yeah, just, <laughs> just, it was nuts, you know. And all of a sudden, you'd look yeah. out your, you'd be, you'd be going down a stretch of road, you know, this giant, you know, convoy of all these storm chasers, and all of a sudden, you'd look to your left, and there'd be a, a helicopter five inches from you out the window that you didn't know was going to be there. It was just <laughs> mad, crazy shit. Oh, my gosh. You must have learned so much from Jan, because he obviously, uh, as well as Twister, directed Speed, right? So what you said there, it was fascinating to watch him. What did you learn? Because like you said, you'd already made a lot of shorts by this point. What were you watching him for? Can you remember some of the things that stood out? Well, Jan, you know, his background, obviously, he was one of the great cinematographers before he directed Speed. So mm. his, uh, he was a very muscular um, cinematographer. And by that, I mean he, he, um, he liked to move the camera, you know. Um, and 
part of the challenges for Jan in that was because he liked to move the camera, because he wanted the camera alive and loose. Up until that point, you weren't, you know, CG was very, very crude. And if you did anything like that, it was really um, more like 2D plus. And what ILM developed for Jan and now is ubiquitous and used in our world everywhere is they gave him the ability to um, to shoot the way he liked to shoot, but be able to track in all the CG elements seamlessly without mm-hmm. having to have um, a repeatable move. Because up until that time, you would only mm-hmm. do repeatable moves on, on process cameras that have pulleys that, you know, that are very clunky, you know, and things that they didn't advertising for product shots and things like that. So um, it was interesting in terms of watching that collaboration between he and Stefan Frangemeister, who who ran, um, you know, the, was a lead creative and ran ILM at that point in time. Um, but also just to see what Jan did uh, with the camera, you know, the tools that he used to, to accomplish the, the, the task at hand. I suppose back in those days, it, it was really about doing as much as humanly possible in camera. I mean, I think it's I think it's kind of come around again in a sense that people are trying to go back to using a bit less CG where they can and doing things in, in camera. But I suppose back then it, it was a necessity and you had to try and solve all those problems um, and not leave it till post. Well, there's a lot of posts in, in, in Twister, um, it, but a lot mm-hmm. of, because it's all about this. It's all about, it's a horizon picture. It's a landscape picture. So it's really, if we got lucky with the weather and sometimes we did down in Oklahoma and Iowa, then they left it. And yeah, a lot of the stuff's practical and I have stitches on my head to prove it, you know, but. Uh, <laughs> oh, <gosh. laughs> Someone literally, you've got cr- crew members at the side throwing stuff at you, wardrobes. No, you, have mach- you, you had these ice machines cows. that were you know pummeling you with hail you know i remember oh, oh uh, yeah. i remember seeing with phil hoffman and i on a on a hill and we were just i mean he's like yawn but like okay we're going again and be like oh no no please stop stop <laughs> <You know? laughs> that's brilliant what's interesting for you is because you said there that you quit acting but then the next step you worked with stanley kubrick and before you made uh, your debut movie in the bedroom which is just a fantastic you know debut movie but again w- during that whole time were you trying to get films made and then learning from these great filmmakers like Jan Duan and you know um, Stanley Kubrick well what it, what had happened is you know I'd only been acting for about film acting for about five years and um, and then I quit to go to the American Film Institute as a fellow in 1992 um, and so I didn't do any acting. And the last film that I had done as an actor was with this wonderful filmmaker, Victor Nunez, who's one of the sort of, you know, early parents of the so-called you know, American independent film movement before there was such a thing, before there was specialty divisions, you know, there was, there was nothing like that. There were people that went out like he and Jonas Mankus and others that made films that, you know, were, would be seen once at the New York film festival and maybe a few foreign festivals. And that was sort of it, you know, um, and Victor had made this film uh, called Ruby in Paradise, uh, and it had gone to. While I was at the while I was at the American Film Institute, it went to Sundance and won the Grand Jury Prize. And a short film that I had made uh, with the cinematographer of of Ruby in Paradise, Alex Flakos, uh, also went up to Sundance while I was in school, and it actually played in front of Victor's film, which is highly unusual. They normally don't do that. Well, Victor's film went and won the grand jury prize there. And so 
while I was still in film school, people started calling me up and, and offering me um, leads in, in, in films. And um, nice. at first, I, I just turned them down because I had no interest <laughs> in doing that any longer. Um, hmm. But at a certain point, you know, it made sense both for practical reasons to, to try to take a little pressure off my wife, who was, you know, working full time. Uh, to keep us afloat while I was in school, but also just in terms of, as you say, having the opportunity to work with someone like Jan or having, you know, clearly having the opportunity to work with somebody like Stanley Kubrick, who again, I just mm-hmm. got a call out of the blue of some, from, for him looking and saying, I'm trying to find, you know, looking for Todd Field, you know, and, um, <laughs> here I am. <laughs> yeah, I'm here, Stanley. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm definitely around. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what, what do you what do you learn from from working with someone like Stanley Kubrick? I mean, not not many people can sort of say that they they've they've been on a set like that. There must have been some things that you you sort of at the, at the time took forward or, or were really useful to you. Uh, well, certainly. I mean, of course, you know, and um, and I would I would say that's the same for work for all the filmmakers I worked with. Mm. You know, um, sometimes you learn things that. Are sort of align with how you think about filmmaking, and sometimes you learn things that that that, you, that it's also good to know what oh, I must never do that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, uh, yeah, it was a it was a very fruitful um, as you you know it's sort of impossible to to adequately describe um, situation for a young fledgling filmmaker. You know, um, mm. I kind of had that film school fantasy kind of come true you know which is i think a lot of us anyone that went to film school you know the back of your head it was always you know you're going to make these films and they're going to go to festivals and then hollywood's going to come knocking and saying what do you want to do next you 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 wonderful young filmmaker you you know and (laughs) and and that never happens it rarely happens you know um but it happened to me you know i uh, stacy snyder who was running tristar at the time uh, a young executive over there, Ben Cosgrove, had seen the film, my, my thesis film that my wife wrote at Sundance, um, and was screening it at TriStar. And Stacy happened to stop by and say, "What? What are you watching?" And she sat down, and so she called me in for a meeting after that and said, "Let's. What do you want to make? I'll make your first feature film." Um, and <laughs> yes, um, what do you want me to make? Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. Type thing. well th- yeah. That, I mean, yeah. so I, while I was on Twister, I wrote a script. Um, it's sort of coming of age script and, and nobody was interested in it. So hmm. within six months later, I got a call from, um, you know, from Stanley Kubrick and, uh, and I headed over there and it was really only while I was there that I had been thinking about this other story, um, that I had read in school that I couldn't get the rights to, um, called killings, uh, by, by under debuse. And, um, hmm. you know, and a, a few months into that shoot, you know, Stanley and I talked a lot about filmmaking, um, and very much like Jan and, uh, and Victor and others, he understood the situation I was in, especially the situation I, I was in standing there, you know, before a master like him. And, and so he, he was very generous, uh, let's put it that way in terms of, um, talking to me about filmmaking. And, um, uh, so Tom Cruise, uh, we kind of had, so I sort of had like three chunks of time over in England. It started at, you know, the, the very beginning of the, of the, of the picture came back in the middle and then was there until the very end for the last day. But um, during the first bit, Tom, Tom and I were having dinner and he said, you're, you know, you're going to make a film 
And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I went to film school. And he said, no, no, you're going to make a film. You know, and I said, well, yeah, no, yes. He said, well, what are you going to do? You know, <laughs> and he pun. really, really kind of, he kind of really put it to me. And I said, well, there's a story I was thinking about, but I can't get the rights, you know. And he said, go get them. You can get them. You're, you're, you know, you're, you're making excuses. When, when you come back for the next, for the second bit, I, I want you to, I want you to tell me that, that you have the rights to this story. And, and so he really, wow. he really challenged me. And, and so I, you know, I, I started looking for them, and they were held by Graham Leader, who was uh, uh, my producing partner on, on In the Bedroom, um, mm-hmm. and uh, Rob Festinger, and he had been trying to to make a film for quite a while. And they very generously invited me to come in and and, and, and let me start over, you know. And so by the time I was finished with In the Bedroom, you know, I had the script, and I'd given it to Stanley, and, um, you know, and... and I was able to sort of talk to him about some very practical things. So in that way, it was a very, um, you know, super um, impossibly fantastic situation in terms of somebody giving you some very sensible advice about, you know, what you might might want to pay attention to. They're two absolutely incredible people to get advice from. How did you find going you know, from being an actor in these these big films and you had directed shorts, but now suddenly you're, you're directing, you know, Tom Wilkinson and Marissa Tomei in a feature film. Did you find it different? Did you find it easy talking to actors? Did you have a specific way of doing it? Obviously being an actor yourself helps massively, but was, was that frightening at first to do that? You know, because let's be honest, in the Bedroom is a fantastic piece of work and it was rightly nominated for, was it five Oscars, including Best Picture for you and Graham and, and Ross and the team and, I mean, and Sissy Spacek as well in there, wasn't it, for, for Best Leading Actress. How, how was that? Talk about working with these people generally just on your debut movie. Well, it was a huge undertaking. We didn't have a great deal of money, you know, um, and I'm glad you called out Ross. Ross was a young producer he'd been ted hope at good machines uh, you know assistant for many years and he'd yeah, ross it, Katz, yeah, yeah. and ross had, had produced one film before that called trick um and you know we were all babies you know and mm-hmm. um so we had a lot of you know sweat equity and enthusiasm and um we're crossing our fingers there was no safety net i mean we made that film for a million and a half dollars you know and mm-hmm. um in June in Maine, which is dodgy, uh, where we were shooting, because you're likely to be pissed on all June with rain. You never know, you know. Uh, it's, it's like uh, England, yeah, like, yeah, very yeah. much yeah. like yeah, or Scotland, exactly. Yeah, well, yes. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and and so uh, it, it was that p- the the logistics were very very difficult. Um, uh, but in terms of working with actors, that always depends on the actor. You know, I've, I've been very, very blessed. And I know how blessed I've been because, you know, 100 million years ago, I worked as an actor. And I would see problems come up between performers and filmmakers. Um, and standing outside of it, I could – sometimes I could see why those things happen and what the – you know, where they were – why they weren't um, communicating as well as they might, you know. Um, mm. But there's not a general rule with that. That comes down to people, you know, and some people get on with each other and have the same sense of humor and the way of talking to one another, and some people don't, you know. Um, mm. So I, I don't think it's any different other than the fact that, you know, in school I was working with 
young performers uh, in most cases. Uh, most of my films were uh, about childhood, so a lot of children. You know, I worked with some really strong adult performers, some who were quite accomplished. Um, but uh, but here I was, you know, as you say, here I was with Tom Wilkinson, you know, mm-hmm. and and Sissy Spacek and Marissa mm-hmm. Tomei and Nick Stahl and and and. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and others, you know, um, yeah. uh, William Mapover in there as well. William Mapover, yeah, yeah and, got his and, and the great Celia Weston and uh, mm-hmm. and William Wise, yeah, great mm-hmm. great actors. Um, so, in one way, you know, um, there's a different sense of um, what's going on when when you're working uh, because all of a sudden you've gone from, you know working with quarter horses and now you're dealing with like the fastest Arabians on earth, you know, there's like mm. so much power at their fingertips and, mm. um, and so much experience. Uh, so you have to get past the elephant in the room, which is I'm working with my heroes, you know, and that's, yeah. all, and that, that's always the case, you know, which is how, how do you get down to the work and realize, you know, at the end of the day, we have to, we have to get the pretense of that, uh, out and we just have to, we have to make something ultimately in the day together. We have to figure out a way to, to, to deal with each other on this, you know. Do you, do you, do you ever have any, any sort of challenges with that? I mean, in terms of working with like a, a bigger actor, um, maybe you want to discuss notes in advance or you want to kind of do rehearsals. Maybe they're not interested in rehearsals. Do, do, do those kind of things come up or do you find it's quite intuitive when you start talking about the story? Well, I mean, I, I'm pretty, I'm fairly transparent. You know, I don't meet a lot of actors, uh, and I only audition supporting roles. Like, if I go to an actor, I, I go to an actor because I admire them and I know they can play the part. Um, and I'm very upfront about what the expectations are in terms of process. Mm. Uh, and so far that's worked out, you know, um, uh, because I've worked with actors who are built the, you know, the way that they are and, um, and they want to rehearse, you know? And I think that if you're like, there's all different styles of acting and there's all different styles of filmmaking. It's, it's not one size fits all, but in terms of what I'm interested in doing, uh, you know, I think we go to the movies to watch ourselves. I think you know, we go to watch people, mm. you know, and, um, and and sometimes we go to watch spectacle and sometimes we go to watch, you know, uh, fart jokes, you know, it's all good. But, <laughs> but, but in terms of what I'm doing, I, I need to rehearse. And a lot of that rehearsal isn't, um, isn't mechanical and it's not about running lines. It's about talking, you know, mm. um, and, and getting to know each other, you know, the same way that you go with your cinematographer, you go to the camera house and you spend time together and you shoot lighting tests and you sit in a room together and say, I like this, I don't like that, why, you know? And and, and you just, as much as you can invest in each other's uh, process so that uh, you can't objectify one another um, and you don't, you're not wondering what each other's after, that you've already made some very, very important decisions about what you're doing and, and why you're doing it. Mm. And I suppose then that helps you if there is issues because you've already sort of ironed out all those issues in the rehearsal. Yeah, it's just, you know, it, it's so, you know, it's a real danger, you know. Uh, we all have these um, 
signs on our backs, these kick me signs like, okay, you're the director yeah. and you're the lead actor <laughs> and you're the key grip and you're the you know best boy and all that stuff. But those are just labels. At the end of the day, it's a cooperative art form, you know, and mm-hmm. you have to figure out. That's one of the things I remember Stuart Rosenberg said in school because, of course, you're young people and you're, you know, you're all paying. So you have to. If you if there's a producing fellow or there's a you know editing fellow or whatever, they all have the same kind of strangely uh, democratic agency as you do because you're all paying and you're all attending school and they're all everyone's trying to learn their various disciplines. Um, but of course, the directors were a noisy bunch and would complain about all the other disciplines, like oh, it was my producer, it was my editor, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I remember Stuart saying, "That's your job." Your job, you're never. It's never going to be perfect for you. And part of your job is managing people and getting everyone on side, so that you can do something together. You can't complain if you're in the complaining business. Find another discipline. You know that's that's really 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 cool to hear. Actually, because it's true. We, when you're making films, you, there's so many people around you. You just a lot of voices. There's a lot of books to read, and it's nice to hear. It's true. It's a collaborative process. We're all in this together. We're all in the, you know, the trenches together, trying to make it work. Mm-hmm. Um, moving on to you know, little children as well. I, I, let's I suppose let's not spend too much time on that. Even though you were that film got Oscar nominated as well. Uh, moving on to your third film. Tar has obviously been Oscar nominated again, so huge congratulations. Thank you. We yeah. loved this film. Um, we really did. I, we, we discussed it for quite a while afterwards. I've also discussed it with other filmmakers as well afterwards. We've dissected it and gone through it. And what does this mean? What does that mean? It's a really wonderful, fascinating insight into someone's mind. And I suppose we it, maybe it's maybe it's a good time to sort of describe the film, and we can drop the trailer in, and then we can dive dive deep into it. Mm. Okay, that sound good. Sure, that's yeah. that sounds sensible. Okay. So, how would you describe this film then? And uh, Dom could Dom's pretty good at this stuff, so he could do it. But it might be nice coming from from you. In a world. Um, <laughs> yes, yes, Todd. <laughs> That's exactly the word. Much better with the American lady. accent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not, exactly. Not English accents. <laughs> In a world. <laughs> so, so uncinematic. Yes, yeah. yeah, so uncinematic. Yeah, amazing, yeah. right? Amazing. Well, this is a, it's a story about um, this character, Lydia Tarr. Um, and Lydia Tarr um, uh, is is many things uh, as 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 Adam Gopnik says in the beginning interview. You know she and she has a, a very sort of storied background in terms of her ascent as an artist. Um, she essentially her vocation is as a conductor. She's also a composer, um, and she's sort of reaching her midlife peak. Um, she's got a, mm. a book launch uh, that she's doing, and she's about ready to record. The Mahler's Fifth Symphony, which is um, the only uh, Mahler symphony she hasn't recorded with her orchestra, it's coming out in a big box set, and 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 she's sort of at a point in her life where she's um, uh, in that very precarious, dangerous place for any artist, where she's thinking about legacy. She's looking in the rearview mirror. She's reached a peak, um, and probably if there's a peak beyond it, there's a very good chance she's not going to get there. So it's going to be. A, a, a nice slow slide for her. Um, and so uh, one of the other many things she's also done is she has a sort of fellowship to lend a hand to other female um, aspirants of the conducting discipline and profession. And one of those candidates, there's been some 
trouble with that, that we're not entirely sure about uh, because we, we're meeting her at a, a very particular moment in her life, sort of a three-week period with the exception of the denouement at the end. And the rules are very simple, which is other than the sort of omnipotent point of view at the beginning of somebody sort of looking at her, um, an unseen person looking at her through a device, and other than sort of the eyes and ears and heart um, in terms of reactions of her assistant, Noemi Merlant. Uh, plays her assistant Francesca Lentini, and then of course his, her wife uh, Sharon Good, now played by Nina Haas. Mostly, it's a fairly arm's length, uh, real time objective, uh, so much as uh, it, it's somewhat subjective point of view where we're with her every minute of uh, of the film. She, she she has some issues she's dealing with. I'll leave it at mm. that. <laughs> you want to dance the mask? You must service the composer. If you're here, then you already know who she is. Lydia Tarr is many things. As a conductor, Tarr began her career with the Cleveland Orchestra, Chicago Symphony Orchestra, the Boston Symphony Orchestra, until she had last arrived here at our own New York Philharmonic. In 2013, Berlin elected Tarr as its principal conductor, and she's remained there ever since. Lydia Tarr has also written music for the stage and screen. She is one of only 15 EGOTs, meaning those who have won all four major entertainment awards. Thank you for joining us, Maestro. Thank you. How's the writing going? Not so well. I keep hearing something. Schopenhauer measured a man's intelligence against his sensitivity to noise. Do you ever find yourself overwhelmed by emotion? Yes. Yes, it does happen. Want to be more active this summer? Sierra helps you save on everything from swimsuits to stand-up paddle boards, tennis rackets to fishing tackle. And if that doesn't float your boat, we also have pool floats. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. It's, I think it's a fascinating film in a, in a lot of senses. I mean, I, I, I was kind of unsure at times when I was when I first started watching it and, and lots of people I've spoken to uh, after after seeing it even until I told them, didn't know that it wasn't a biopic of some kind. <laughs> um, I mean, obviously, that it goes into, it starts off and it, it feels very much like you are in, in the life and there's that kind of authenticity of what it is to be a composer. And then it transforms into something very different and kind of almost like the, un, the unraveling of someone's kind of mental health um, and reality sort of, you know, slightly dips dips into another area. How do you sort of plan in in advance um that that kind of shift when you when you're kind of looking at um you know something that goes across these kind of two genre sub subplots well i mean this has been the first film other than the film i mentioned you know um that i wrote for at stacy snyder's behest you know right out of film school this sort of film school you know fantasia um the first original script that i've written um all the other scripts i've you know worked on have been adaptations that I've worked on with other people um, or myself, uh, but mostly with, in, in large part, with the authors of that material. Um, and so you inherit a lot of choices um, um, because, you know, to use a really tired phrase, the world building. Oh, boy. The, you know, <laughs> the world building. <laughs> the world building has been done, you know, by, by other people uh, based on that intellectual property. So this was the first time I'd sat down and written original script um well that's not true i wrote one other original script i don't know 16 years ago that i didn't end up making um but um Mm -hmm. the first time in an awfully long time you know so it it, it is a long digressive way of not answering your question i suppose but um (laughs) you know when you write original material very much like the people approach the material in all kinds of different ways you know um you know most of my writer friends are actually fiction writers you know um and some of them are plotters some of them are very structurally oriented but i think a lot of them the reason they do it is the pleasure of finding what it is and then just writing you know um and Mm -hmm. so this script was you know i knew how i wanted it to end and i knew where it was going to start but I, i i didn't plot it out you know, I, I knew who she was, um, and I wrote it very quickly, like in twelve weeks. So I didn't. In, in terms of where things shift, in terms of, uh, in terms of that, that really just came out of that process. It wasn't. I didn't give it a great deal of thought or try to analyze why. 
you know, in terms mm-hmm. of the in terms of executing that in a way of dramatizing that, that was something else, you know, and that was about uh, about proportion and about how far do you push something and in what manner do you push it and is it through it, trying to find the simplest means of, of doing that, you know, in large part that has to do with the supreme skill of Kate Blanchett. Um, mm-hmm. and, and then you don't have to, you know, start, you know, basting the bird, you know, with too many tricks and, and gimmicks, you know, you try to just kind of stay out of the way, you know, that was sort of the idea from the beginning, which is create a tightrope for, for, for someone of her skill, take away the safety net and then ask her to climb higher onto the pole to another tightrope, you know, and, mm-hmm. um, and, and so you know, I, I would give my hats off, and my and the, I think the credit for that really goes to Kate. To be honest with you, did you write it with her in mind? No, I wrote it for her, not in mind. I, I wrote oh, it for I her. Wrote it for her. Yeah. Did she know wow. at the time? <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, was this a surprise to her? Yeah, it was a surprise. She had no idea I was writing it for her. Uh, okay. I mean, I, I suppose it's a gamble, but also it's not a gamble because if you've been so specific and you've thought about it and you've you've got you know really good track record. I suppose it's quite a compliment for an actor to to be so well thought out that you've written it for someone. Uh, not necessarily. I mean, <laughs> okay. Okay. I don't okay. think that's true. <laughs> I mean, mm. like if I were to give you guys a brief, but I said, okay, Giles, okay, Dom, like here's the thing, and you guys are both performers. Like, um, here's this character. Um, uh, she's not what Hollywood would say was particularly likable. Um, you need to learn German. You need to learn to play Bach on the piano. You need to learn American accent. Um, <laughs> you need to do stunt driving. You need to do all of these things. It's going to be really, really hard. And you're on camera for every single scene and you're never going to have a day off. And a lot of actors would say, are you crazy? I'm not going to do that, you know? Um, So I don't think it was, it wasn't like a home run. I mean, I I was very, very nervous when I sent her the script, you know, I, I, um, yeah, I, I I waited a long time. It wasn't until my wife forced me to send her the script because she said, you know, you're living this sort of fantasy purgatory of neither Mm. being in heaven or hell. And, and, and and that's not a good place for you. You need to find out where you're living, you know? Um, Mm. So, uh, so I finally, you know, I finally sent it to her. I suppose it is a sort of, it, it is, you know, I'm, I'm always thinking like when, when sending out to a cast, like what, what is it that's going to appeal to them? I suppose for this, it, it's it's that kind of, it's challenging, it's a very challenging role, but it's, it is kind of award season, um, you know, it's, it's a real prestige role, I, I think, to, to take on. Um, well, you never that, know that, though. I, th- I never know. It, no, no, I, I suppose that's it. It's only afterwards mm. that that's, that's a reality. At the time, it's always unsure, isn't it? Well, I mean, there's expect- people have expectations, but I think if you're a filmmaker with those expectations, you're in real trouble. You know, there used to be a, a kind of a, there was a kind of, <laughs> there was a rule that we used to have, you know, when I was a young actor. I think I remember having this conversation with Eric Stoltz like 30 years ago. And it was that kind of thing where if you're on an in- independent film and you hear the director saying, Hey, yeah, man, I hope we get into Sundance. You're definitely not going to Sundance. You know? <laughs> yes, absolutely. It's a rule still now. Yeah. Just don't yeah, say yeah, it. Yeah, you don't, yeah. I mean, like, what? Okay, you yeah. might as well just go home now. You know, just, yeah. there's certain yeah. things you don't want to, you don't want to forget about saying them. You don't even want to think mm-hmm. them, you know? No, mm-hmm. no. But on that, what, interestingly, you sent it to Kate. You were worried about it. You'd sort of asked her to do all these things. What was her 
response? What was her initial mm. response to you? Well, I mean, I was it the same? Was it no chance? I'm not doing this. <laughs> no, no. I, I mean, I Kate and I had met on a on a on another project that we were going to do together that didn't come together. Um, uh, it was a okay. script that uh, Joan Didion and I had written together. So it was a. Um, mm. oh, it was an easier in. It was an easier. Yeah, it wasn't like we'd never spoken to each other, but we hadn't. We hadn't spoken to each other in over ten years. So it wasn't like it wasn't like we were. We had any you know, long-standing friendship or anything like that. We, we, we'd had a single meeting, um, but I was, mm. I was struck by that meeting as, as anyone would be meeting with, with Kate Blanchett because, um, mm. because she thinks like a filmmaker, you know, you're not just talking to an actor. I mean, she really, you know, you can point to reasons you can say, well, maybe it's because she has a stage background and maybe because she and Andrew Upton, you know, ran a theater company and maybe, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe, but then there's something beyond that, you know, um, and that has to do with her artistry and her intellect and the way that she looks at narrative like a filmmaker, you know, so um, it's when she agreed, she wouldn't have gotten on the phone with me unless she, unless she'd already decided she was going to do it, you know, and I mm-hmm. had, um, I had first spoken with her agent who I, who I knew well, um, who essentially said she wasn't available for three years. And, um, mm-hmm. yeah. and I, that's, the, that's the line they give, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but to you, yeah. well, she, well, but she wasn't, you know, I, I, All right, yeah. yeah I mean, I, I yeah. was on the phone with her and I, I got, I wrecked my car and then she felt sorry for me and said, okay, send me the script and I'll read it. And then she called me back a few hours later and said, Kate's going to do it. And I said, well, I thought you said you weren't available for three years. She yeah. said, we'll figure it out. You know, so. <laughs> wow. Wow. So, so what was the process in terms of she's, she's agreed to do it. You're thinking, okay, amazing. I've got this, this fantastic actress. What was the collaboration in terms of from where the script was before you'd taken it to her versus that collaboration? You know, were there any script changes that were done or, or was it more sort of talking about the character and opening up that side? Well, the first part was really just talking about the milieu because her background was not in concert music nor was mine you know so she wanted to know about my homework you know and then mm. and then you know we had to we both became you know very amateur enthusiasts about concert music and the history of concert music so a lot of it had to do with trying to figure out that world you know as much as anyone can that's sort of coming out coming into it at a very you know late in life um uh and then very practical things, you know, um, mechanical things, you know, and, and it, it was obvious what she had to accomplish in the nine months before we were going to shoot. She had to learn all of this stuff, you know, um, and she did. She, you know, she had to work with, and it wasn't, the pandemic was still, you know, very much um, in full swing. So everything had to be done remotely. She had to learn stick technique and everything with Natalie Marie Beale, our, our conducting you know, coach, and wow, she had remotely. to. Wow. She had to. She had to learn. You know how to play the piano. How to play Bach. Mm. She had to learn. You know, all of this stuff. And um, but she was making two other films during that period of time. And you know, this is the person that never sleeps. Like she would come home after a full day of work and and ring me from Budapest, wherever she was, and, and we'd be on the phone for a couple of hours. And this went on for nine months. So by the time we were on the ground together in Berlin. We'd had a fair amount of time, you know, um, and we talked through everything. Uh, and she showed up on set and she had memorized the script in its entirety, not just her 
not this other actors, you know, not just cues and her lines. She had actually memorized the scene descriptions. So um, anytime that we decided to, to adjust something based on a conversation or rehearsal, it, it was a, it had to have real intent behind it because she actually showed up and had this thing memorized like it was a play, you know? Wow. Wow. Um, <laughs> that must have been just incredible. And then to get it upon its feet as well during that process, can you, would you mind talking us through your sort of day to day onset? Um, how you, proceed with the day obviously you've done your rehearsals you've done a lot of homework together the whole team the crew as well talk us through your day-to-day on set what do you like to do what's the things that work for you as a director to get through the days to make sure you're getting the coverage you need of performances and working with the team well i don't like coverage very much um you know um there's been a lot of talk about and i think um misnomers about why and, and things like that in terms of Famously, um, some filmmakers who do many takes, you know, um, mm. a lot of speculation on that. But, I, you know, I, I think the reason that uh, the filmmakers do that is that they don't do six setups. They're not looking to make a film in a completely an editorial, you know. They want to make some decisions uh, in real time and have the thrill of that. You know, again, taking some of the safety net away from you makes you pay attention as a filmmaker potentially i think in a, in a different way not that it's right or wrong but i mean that's sort of that's what i'm interested in so um you know i i do have extensive rehearsals but most of that has to do with getting to know each other and and getting all that stuff out of the room like i mentioned and then and and i also scout for a very long time with my hod so by the time i'm on set you know i've been through everything with with my production designer, in this case, Marco Bittner-Rosser and, and his team, his dresser, you know, mm. um, and, um, and, and his, 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 his lead person. Um, I've been with, in this case, with my cinematographer for months, months and months and months. So, um, you know, the old saw is true, you know, you make a film in prep. You know, so on the day, it's very simple. The day, a, tip, a typical day, unless it involves hundreds of people, like the orchestra scenes, that was a very logistical mm-hmm. thing, or, imagine, or, yeah. or, or the Juilliard scene or something like that. Most of, for a film like this, the day starts like first hour, like the crew can go get something to eat, go eat, go smoke, right. go drink, go do whatever you want to do. And then I'm alone with the, the actors on set and, and we'll rehearse it and, um, and, and then we'll try to make a decision. Uh, a sensible decision based on the rehearsal about how to photograph it. Then you bring the crew in and say, okay, you know, camera goes over there. It's three feet high, no tilt, 29 millimeter lens. Um, let's try to hold the stops so we can hold both of them. So let's see if we can pull a deeper stop here, like a four or five, six split instead of wide open and da, 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 and then boom. And then we go and we shoot, you know, and then we shoot until we get the scene to where it wants to be as opposed to, um, coming in and going okay we're going to do a close-up here and a you know detail shot here and a little move here mm-hmm. uh, i mean that's totally you know um uh th- that's a perfectly sensible way to shoot it's just not not really my style you know it sounds mm-hmm. sounds like a very performance sort of driven method as well which which is which is kind of nice um i mean I, i've i've often found you can sort of plan a lot of shots and then the actors go in to rehearse the scene and it doesn't feel organic and you're you're trying to fix motivations rather than sort of moving the camera around 
Um, yeah, but it's a dance it too. If you have if you have actors that are technical, like in this case, I mean, Kate is a highly highly technical actor. Hmm. So it, it, we never talked about how we were going to shoot. It was about, and we started with the orchestra scene. So the first day, Florian. And I, you know, we were running four camera crews. We had to do 95 setups on the first day, you know. So we went from a very logistical thing, which was all about coverage, to mm. then getting smaller. So it wasn't until maybe three weeks in that Kate said, you don't do any coverage, do you? <laughs> you sure you don't want to do a close-up here? I was like, nope. <laughs> and so, um, so that was really important the first part of the day because uh, – a lot of times we'd find a scene that really worked very well for three quarters of the scene and then was going to fall apart based on what would be a natural instinct, maybe to rise or cross a room or do this or that. Um, and that's where, that's when it, it, you know, there's a kind of a, a mutually agreed upon, um, you know, uh, winning the, the battle to win the war kind of thing where even though the actor might want to get up and move because it feels right, you say no, don't stay there because if because mm. if you get up and move, I'm going to have to cover it. Let's not cover the scene, you know. Mm. Yes, that's fascinating because it was so nice how you you'd stay on shots for a while, or it was a one seemed like it was a one one or if you like, if you want to call it that, and that it drew you in because we we didn't feel cheated by cuts sometimes. We were like we were the voyeur of this, and we were getting inside Tars world and ahead even if we were she was a bit further away she'd always sort of come towards us and move away it was really clever blocking as well at times it was really fascinating you also um there seems to be a lot of secrets in tar there's a lot of things and and i've heard and read from other interviews that you've said it's up to the audience it's their interpretation of the film and there's lots of theories about this film and for those of you who haven't seen it yet we're not going to spoil anything here go see it and make up your own mind but was that always your intention to have these wonderful little pockets of uh deceptions maybe or well they, well they well there's an intent behind all of them i mean they're not um they're not just you know random. i mean i, I mean I know, I know the reasons they're there and i think that's that's okay. that's I think that's for me that's important you know it's not important that anyone else knows the reasons they're there but I think the filmmaker has to know you know and and, and the filmmaking that excited me you know and why I wanted to uh, to make films in the first place um and some of the filmmakers I've worked with um that have done similar things there's real intent behind what they're doing but they would be the last people that would ever come out and and explain their intent right it's but hopefully the intent activates it enough to where you, you you lean in and try to find your own you know were there any scenes or moments from the script that you shot which didn't make it into the final movie like did it did it change dramatically in in the edit well it always changes in the edit you know it's always that thing I mean, even back in school you know i remember not in the first year because the first year was just too fast we had to shoot a short film and edit it in four days, you know, with like 300 bucks. So mm. you were lucky to, 
to get out of those alive. But the, you know, in the second year at AFI, they give you just enough rope to hang yourself. So you've gone from this very, <laughs> very fast tempo to now you have almost too much time to make a short film. And there is such a thing mm. as having too much time to improve something into a failure or overthink something or, mm. you know, um, and, um, and, uh, you know, what, what, what I found consistent since that second year project, it was a project that, that my wife wrote, uh, Serena, Serena Rathbun. And it was a, you know, it was a much lauded short, you know, and did well on the festivals and everything. But there was a, the, my favorite scene that she wrote in that, um, this big comic scene that required a huge amount of, uh, logistical uh, things, including permissions by foreign publishers and, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I took two days out of a, a, you know, fairly short schedule to shoot this scene. It was the very first scene that wound up on the floor because, because it was so good and so entertaining and so wonderful that by definition, it was a showstopper, you know, a stopper being the operative word. And um, that's what I think is you know, the kill your darlings things is often the things that most impress you um, are the things that will kill a movie because mm. the movie can't recover. You can't reinvest afterwards. And it's when those things, like where do those things happen in a film? Like they're probably best left for the beginning and the end and they don't play very well uh, in the middle parts, you know? So mm. yeah, there, there's always things like that. Things that you go to a great deal of trouble to do that seem intensely important and in and of themselves are magical when you walk away on the day, you know, everyone's sort of patting each other on the back and then they have no business in the film at all. Yeah. You know? Yeah. They don't work That's in the it. edit. Um, finally, uh, a bit of advice uh, for a filmmaker wanting to have a career in this business uh, such as yours. Well, I don't have a career, you know. I, I, I... seriously, every film you've made <laughs> has won or nominated for an Oscar. Yeah, but, it, <laughs> yeah, but it's impressive. been over like thirty years. You know, I mean, I make a movie once every mm. ten years. You, you don't really make a living as a as a as a as a filmmaker that way. Um, I mean, I I got into filmmaking, you know, uh, wanting to to make a very a particular the kind of film that I that I was interested in making. You know, and um, I think like everyone, I kind of assumed that I would be making a film every year, you know, the sort of dream mm -hmm. of, of, of being, you know, some somewhat prolific. Um, uh, and that didn't happen, you, you know? And so um, I think it's, I think advice is cheap, you know, I think you have to, I think you have to do what you have to do. And, and if you're interested in all kinds of genres, you should work in all kinds of genres, you know, like George Roy Hill did, you know, mm. a, a, an unsung filmmaker that, that probably because George worked so exquisitely well in so many genres, you know? Um, and if you're, if, if you, if you want to do horror, then, you know, you do horror. And, um, but I think most people have a, you know, a reasonable expectation that if you're going to do this, that the dream is that you make a living doing it. But I, I made a decision really early on that that wasn't going to be the case for me. And I would have to find other ways of, of keeping my lights on and, and, you know, knock on wood, I, I have, but, um, I, I was given advice when I started out by Carl Franklin. Um, and Carl was someone I had done a few Roger Corman movies with as an actor when Carl was at the American Film Institute. And Carl's actually um, probably the only reason I, I, I was allowed entry into the American Film Institute because um, he really um, 
he back channeled for me and said, you need to take this person, you know? Yeah. And, um, but Carl said, when you make your first film, it has to be a signature film. Don't do anything that, that isn't intensely important to you because it may be the only chance you have. It may be the only time you ever make a feature film. So you die on your own sword. Don't die on someone else's. Fantastic advice. I think it's incredibly comforting as well like for filmmakers that are out there that sometimes it does take five or ten years to make your film. You know, some, some directors do things every year. Some, it, it takes them a long time. And I think when you, when you make a film like Tar or some of your other works, it's, it's, it's rewarding to know um, that there's something mm. great at the end of it. So huge congratulations. We do have to let you go. Sadly, we could talk yeah. all day. Uh, Tar is outstanding piece of work huge congratulations i really loved diving into that world and i look forward to seeing it again really amazing film thanks tom you can go out there making films people you can do it you can write those scripts you can get to those top producers and if you do you're lucky enough to rise up and do well send the elevator back down Good luck with everything, and yep. uh, hopefully we'll see you when you make your next one. Hopefully it won't be as long. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll, yeah I'll, I'll see you guys when we both have when we have long grey beards. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All the best. Thanks okay, so much. See you later. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.